This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, we're looking tonight at verses 16 through 28. 29, it's hard to determine whether it really goes with what goes before or introduces what comes after. Uh, To me, it seems better to serve as an introduction to verse 30 and what follows, so we'll, Lord willing, take that up uh, next time. But uh, tonight, looking at verses 16 through 28, Uh, it's been a while since we've been in Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied in the days of uh, King Josiah's reforms up through the end of Jerusalem, through the destruction of Jerusalem. His message was one uh, predominantly of judgment, but also certainly of God's grace intermingled with that. Uh, As we saw last time, back uh, last time we met on Sunday nights, uh, on Sunday night we looked at verses 1 through 15 of chapter 7, the so-called temple sermon of Jeremiah, where uh, he challenges the people's Trust in the temple as such. Remember their mantra, verse 4. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And uh, almost as if no matter what they did, because the temple stood, they were immune to any kind of chastening or discipline from God. And the Lord, through Jeremiah, challenges that attitude, points to Shiloh, that ancient worship place back in the days of Samuel's youth that had become ruins, and uh, no, uh, the temple was not inviolable in and of itself. Uh, that was a source of false hope and false comfort if they persisted in their sins. And so we pick up this evening with verse 16. As for you, do not pray for this people, the Lord's speaking to Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, For I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves? To their own shame. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field, and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. 
But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we turn our attention to the Scriptures tonight, uh, that the light of the Scriptures would come to us by the light of your Holy Spirit. And Father, as we read this passage particularly, we pray that you would give us insight into the Word and insight into our own lives and our own relationships with you and with this world in which we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Through the history of the church, emphasis has been placed, uh, particularly in Protestant churches since the time of the Reformation, on the importance of family worship. And by that I mean not narrowly conceived, even as specific times that we study God's Word together as families, but on the importance of parents teaching their children the saving truths of God's Word. Now certainly in many cases that would take the form of meeting together, uh, perhaps in the morning, perhaps after the evening meal, to read the Word of God, to talk about it, uh, perhaps to work on catechism, perhaps to sing hymns, a uh, variety of, uh, of manifestations of it, but of Christian families uh, building their family and teaching their children uh, God's Word. Now, that certainly has precedent in the Scripture, going all the way back to Israel's earliest days in the book of Deuteronomy, the encouragement. Uh, when your child asks you, what is it about these rules and ordinances that we observe? You are to teach them how God brought you out of Egypt. You are to teach them how God has, is bringing you into this land or has brought you into this land that he is giving you and how he's given us his law and his ordinances to obey them. And that it was to be woven naturally into the events of life when you walk in the way and so forth. Uh, that all of life was to be saturated with God's truth. And that's, that's a good thing. Uh, we are to be doing that, certainly to train up our children to know who the Lord is uh, and pray that they know him not just in, a, in, a, in an intellectual, cerebral way, but that in their hearts they are regenerate and know the Lord as their Savior. Well, we have an interesting twist on that here, uh, a perversion of it, if you will, or as I'm calling it and have named the sermon, family worship gone bad, because there is some religion here in this family that's described, but it's not exactly what Deuteronomy had in mind. And in fact, as we continue to look at the waywardness of God's people in Jeremiah, we notice that there are three problems uh, that are evident uh, as the Lord speaks to Jeremiah and, and speaks uh, to his people through Jeremiah. A number of problems here that we want to look at. And the first one is misdirected worship. 
misdirected worship. Look at verse 16. The Lord starts by telling Jeremiah not to pray for the people. Don't, it's emphatic, it's repeated. Don't pray for this people. Don't lift up a cry or prayer for them. Do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Now, why on earth would God tell Jeremiah not to pray for people who are so obviously in need of prayer? Well, because at this point, God has made up his mind concerning them, uh, that his chastening is coming, and in a sense, a part of that judgment is instructing his prophet not to pray for them, and if he does pray, the Lord will not hear him. Well, let's see how bad things had gotten that the Lord would say such a thing as that. He says to Jeremiah, verse 17, Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Look at what's going on. Well, what's going on? Verse 18, The children gather wood, fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough. Now, what you see here is, is everyone in the family participating, everyone in the family involved. Now, I can remember as a child when we'd grill hamburgers or something, uh, having great fun stacking the little charcoal briquettes uh, when I was little uh, in the grill and even getting to pour on the lighter fluid. But it was my father who lit the fire. Uh, well, you see something of that here, the small children gathering the fuel for a fire. They are gathering the wood. It's the fathers who kindle the fire, and the women are preparing dough. But what is this family about? To make cakes for the queen of heaven. Who on earth is the queen of heaven? Well, she has a name. She has a number of names. To the Hebrews, she was known as Ashtoreth. Uh, to the Phoenicians, she was known as Astarte. Uh, to the Akkadians, she was known as Ishtar, and she was a pagan fertility goddess. And so here you have in Judah, here you have in Jerusalem, uh, this, this pagan, idolatrous, religious practice being observed even in the heart of Judah, in the city of Jerusalem Itself, This idolatrous practice is going on. This was a uh, religion, actually, that particularly appealed to women. Uh, and it occurs again, look, if you will, later in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 44. Because you may look at this and say, well, well what are the men doing? Why are they allowing this to take place? Uh, what we see is that actually the men were following the women. Look at Jeremiah 44, verse 15. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pethros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah. He had been speaking to them about this, these things. Then verse 16, they answered Jeremiah. This is what they say. This is how crass, how bad things were. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. 
But we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the Queen of Heaven, and pour out drink offerings to her, as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, and prospered, and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the Queen of Heaven, and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything, and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women said... When we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image, and poured out drink offerings to her? The men had abdicated their leadership. They were simply following the women's lead. They were following and approving what the women were doing. We notice here that these cakes involved bearing the image of Ashtoreth, sometimes made in her image or had the image impressed upon them. Sometimes they would also be uh, made in the shape of a moon, a crescent moon, or sometimes these cakes would also be made in the shape of a star, uh, in the worship of Astarte or Ashtoreth. And so you have this problem, one, of the men declining to exercise spiritual leadership, uh, of the women basically taking the lead and the, and the men supporting them in that, in this idolatrous practice. Now, again, verse, um, the end of verse 18, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. But there's some irony here. Look at verse 19. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Well, yes, it is. Uh, or the word could be translated spite. Uh, yes, this was against the Lord, but notice what he says. It is, not, is it not themselves to their own shame? You know, when they engage in these things, they, they are offending God, to be sure, but they're hurting themselves. And even notice how twisted their thinking had become. You know, as long as we served the Queen of Heaven, we were fine. But it's when we stopped making offerings to the Queen of Heaven that all these bad things came about. They're not even acknowledging the Lord as the one who's blessed them and prospered them. They're giving the credit for that to Astarte, to Ashtoreth, uh, not even to the Lord. That's how bad things had become. And the Lord says it's, it's they themselves whom they provoke, they themselves whom they spite. And so God reinforces his intent to judge them. Verse 20, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field, the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. In uh, 44, as we saw, chapter 44 sort of elaborates just how, how bad things were in Jerusalem. Now, what about Josiah's reforms? Remember, they had found the book of the law. They had reinstituted Passover and done all of these things. That's true. But apparently there was a whole subsurface level with this commitment to pagan religion that had not been affected. Outwardly, many good things had taken place under those reforms. But outward reforms cannot change the human heart. And this religion, the nature of it, it could be practiced somewhat secretly. Uh, and in fact, it appears that exactly uh, was exactly what was going on. So part of the problem here is misdirected worship. You know, it's interesting. Um, Recently, we were reading at home Romans 11, and Paul speaks there of Israel, who had a zeal, but it was not according to knowledge. Paul, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, is taking up this whole question, what about Israel? What about their unbelief? What about their rejection as a group? Uh, not everyone, obviously, but, uh, but in large, 
uh, their rejection of the Messiah. And, and in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is answering that question. And he acknowledges that many Israelites were, 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 were zealous and zealous for God, but it was not in accord with knowledge. It was not without an understanding, or it was without an understanding of what God had done now in Christ and, and the nature of going from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And that's a common perception or misperception in our day that it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, as long as you're devout, as long as you're zealous in your religion. Nothing could be further from the truth, and this is evidence of that. They were quite zealous in serving the Queen of Heaven, and yet it was misdirected, misguided worship. It was worship in toward the wrong object, and God was not pleased, no matter how sincere, no matter how zealous they were, no matter how devoted to Ashtoreth they were, uh, and his judgment was upon them. So the first problem that we see here festering is that of misdirected worship. And in our case, I, I hope none of you is guilty of making uh, cakes with the image of Astarte on them. Uh, and yet, uh, how many are there among professing Christians who profess that the Christ is Lord, and yet there are many other things that are a higher priority other things to which they are more greatly devoted than to following and serving Christ, than to serving the true God of heaven and earth. They're in church, yes. They can say the right things, yes. They profess faith in Jesus, yes. And yet their heart really is devoted to something else or to other things. Is it really all that different from what's taking place here? First problem, misdirected worship. Second problem that we find here is that of forgotten obedience, verses 21 through 26. Notice what verse 21 says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. First thing we notice is God is disgusted with the offerings that they do make to him. Now, when he says, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh, a little background here. The burnt offerings typically were designed to be consumed entirely by the flame, not by the person, not eaten, but consumed by the flame, hence the name burnt offering. Uh, it was to be burnt up. It was consumed, and the idea was that the, that the, uh, the particles, uh, the, the flame, all of that it was, was rising. It was being offered up to God in that way. But other sacrifices that could be offered uh, could be enjoyed. Sometimes the priests would have part of that to sustain them. They could eat some of it. Sometimes the worshipers themselves, the offerer of the sacrifice, would also be able to eat part of that. Well, God is, is, is expressing his disgust with their offerings here by saying, take the burnt offering, eat it too. It really doesn't matter. Because from God's point of view, when obedience is out the window, the offerings really don't mean anything at all. Where the person's heart is not devoted to the Lord, the offerings become meaningless. We saw that when we studied Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, right off the bat. In chapter 1, God says uh, in verse 13, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Uh, he says, Why have you come and, and are just trampling my, my courts? Uh, what is he saying? Well, he's not rejecting the offerings as such that he himself instituted. He's saying that unless your heart is in it, 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 I don't care. You can eat it. You can do whatever you want to with it. It doesn't make any difference because it's all a sham anyway. 
But back to this whole thing of obedience. Look at verse 22. For the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. The word obey there uh, means hear my voice, but there's an interesting preposition in Hebrew there that shows up. It's as if he's saying, hear into my voice, hear in my voice. Uh, the point seems to be it's not just you hear it, but you 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 hear it personally. You hear it with conviction. In fact, we have an expression similar to that in English. If I say I buy something, I mean I purchase it. But if I say I buy into something, it means that I have a stake in it. I, I endorse it. I'm personally connected with it. I've bought into this plan. I'm a part of this. I'm on board with this. Interesting. Similar kind of construction in Hebrew, hear into my voice, buy into what I'm saying, believe what I'm saying personally with your heart. Don't just hear it as background noise, but hear it to obey it, obey my voice, hence the, the ESV's rendering, and I will be your God and you shall be my people. So the relationship here is based not on sacrifices, but on obedience. That's what God was interested in. And walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. And this, 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 this bears out as we look at the scriptures. Uh, look at, at Exodus chapter 19. Turn back to Exodus 19. Here Israel has come out of Egypt. They are uh, there at Sinai. And notice what the Lord says to them. Exodus 19 verse 3. The Lord called to him, to Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses came and called the elders of the people, set before them all these words the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And you go to chapter 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, which summarizes the law, and then more specific laws are given. And it's only after you come to chapter 24, and the people make this covenant, and the blood is sprinkled on them, and they say, All the Lord has said we will do, then you start getting into the design of the tabernacle and the whole system of, of sacrifices and all of that. Uh, but to obey, as the scriptures tell us, to obey is better than burnt offerings. And yet they had forgotten that. They thought as long as they followed this system, as long as they did their religious duty and offered the appropriate sacrifices, God was pleased, even if they lived in complete disobedience to God. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's this call to obedience to the Lord. That's true today. Christ is our sacrifice, but how much better is it to obey the Lord than to have to go to the Lord and confess your sin and plead the merit of Christ's blood? I think there's a danger. We do, I think, in a very subtle way, presume on God's grace. 
We know not to do that. Paul warns us not to do that. But if you knew that your salvation before God, that your being in heaven was dependent on how you lived, would it make a difference in how you live? Then understanding that Christ has paid for you to be in heaven with his own blood, with his own obedience, I think we sometimes subtly, whether we acknowledge it to ourselves or not, live less carefully than we should simply because we know Christ has our back covered. And yet the Lord says, obey my voice. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Now, yes, ultimately, Christ is our obedience. But it's God's desire that we obey him. Yes, praise God, as John said, when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But John says, I write these things to you so that you won't sin. We need to be very serious. That was the problem here. They had a form of religion. The veneer was there. And yet they weren't concerned to obey God's word. And they thought everything was okay as long as they offered the right sacrifice. The Lord says, verse 24, they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And even from early on, that was the pattern. Verse 25, from the day your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I've persistently sent all my servants to prophets. Yeah, they did not listen, incline their ear, but rather stiffened their necks and went from bad to worse. I was reading, uh, actually this morning, in my devotional in, in 1 Samuel, and this same thing came up, and I noticed this because I was thinking about the text in Jeremiah, but in the passage where Israel has demanded a king, and Samuel you know, takes this to the Lord, they want a king like the nations, uh, verse, uh, this is 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And here's the verse, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Notice how similar that language is to this. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. And so there's this forgotten obedience, this misunderstanding that the Lord wanted their religious ritual. No, he wanted their hearts. He wanted their heart obedience to him. And yet there was this early and persistent disobedience. And we, we, you see that, you know, and the people are grumbling. They're, they're hardly out of Egypt before they're complaining and grumbling against the Lord. Misdirected worship, forgotten obedience, and now just briefly hardened hearts. Look at 27 through 29. So you shall speak all these words to them. They won't listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. Sounds a lot like Isaiah's call. You know, they, 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 you'll, you'll speak and they won't hear. They just won't get it. Verse 28, you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. There's unresponsiveness. You'll call, but they won't answer you. There's stubbornness. This nation did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not accept discipline. And there's blindness. Truth has perished. Cut off from their lips. What a tragic state of affairs for a people who had so magnificently experienced God's saving grace. Unresponsive, stubborn, blind. In a word, dead in their sins. Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And that's exactly the state of affairs we find here. And I think 
there's a progression here. I think as you look at this wrong worship, this misdirected worship, it leads to wrong living, which leads to hardened hearts. How important is worship? How important is understanding who God is, understanding what the Bible reveals to us of him? Well, it's so important that if our worship goes astray, our living is sure to follow. And to justify living in our sin, our hearts are hardened toward God. Nothing can change that but the sovereign grace of God to come in and give new hearts, to give light where there's darkness, to give life where there's death. Dear friends, each of these we need to be on guard against to make sure that our worship is pure and biblical, that Christ is our focus, the object of the devotion of our hearts. We need to make sure that we are not presuming on God's grace or relying on religious activity, but our hearts, in fact, purpose to obey God, not just outwardly to please men, but from the heart to please the Lord, and that we pray that God would spare us uh, from being hardened by sin. Sin hardens. It does. It makes us numb to the rebukes of others, in fact, uh, resentful toward others who might try to speak to us or correct us. Uh, It has a way of uh, just increasing its own rebellion. We need to guard our hearts and watch our hearts and pray that by God's grace our hearts would not become hardened but would be daily repentant, daily receptive to the truth, the instruction, and yes, even the correction of God's word, whether it comes to us directly from the pages of Scripture, from the pulpit, from a friend or whomever it might be, so that if we don't, as believers, as families, as a church, as a denomination, fall into this sad state of affairs. Because Judah had fallen to become in a bad way, into a bad way. And lots of groups of God's people have followed in their footsteps from that day until now. And we need to pray that God would spare us of this same thing, but rather we would have true worship, heartfelt obedience, and hearts that are warm and receptive toward the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is a sad picture, no doubt about it, and we pray that you you would spare us uh, from this condition. We recognize, Father, that it really is true, but for your grace, there we go. And we pray, Father, for your grace, that we would always love you, want to serve you, that our hearts would be sensitive toward sin, uh, quick to repent, tender consciences before you. And Father, we pray that we would not be this way, but that we would be characterized by, by good worship, by love for you expressed in heartfelt obedience and hearts that are alive and love you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.